Hey everyone, welcome in. This is a special episode because happy Labor Day. We're, we, we should all be resting from labor and so we are resting as well. So what are we going to, but we're still here for you. We're here to serve the people and we're going to go back into the Wayback Machine. So Rob, what do we have queued up? Yeah, we're, we're going to go ahead and take a week off for you and me and we're going to replay one of our previous episodes with our interview with Jack Munire uh, and Jack's work as the, with the Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in Israel-Palestine. Why we need children to be escorted to school uh, by mm -hmm. foreigners and things of that nature, but also talk about how Daoud Nassar is doing. So Daoud was attacked a number of months ago, and we had Jack come on, a good friend of Daoud's. And I just finished a blog series on Israel-Palestine, about seven posts. They finished up, if you're listening to this, in the beginning of September of 2022. The blogs finished up in the beginning of August of 2022. And the seventh uh, in that series was on Daoud Nassar. And I'll just simply say it this way. I admire no human being more than him as the epitome of Christ and the, of Christ likeness. Uh, and I think his story is a phenomenal story that needs to be heard by Christians around the world. So I wrote about it and we also interviewed Jack about it. And I thought, oh, that's a pretty good way to, to have our Labor Day episode with our interview with Jack. Great. And if you have not, go back and listen to older episodes because we have a, just a lot of great uh, episodes there. But hope you enjoy this uh, interview with Jack. Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into this special edition of the Determined Truth Podcast. Over the years, but especially over the last uh, few months, if you've listened to the podcast, you know that we don't just top, talk about Bible and theology but there's a, a cause that's very near and dear to Rob's heart, and that is justice issues specifically of what's happening in the Middle East and from a biblical perspective, what that looks like. So we're going to have a special guest on today, Jack Menire. And so, Rob, why don't you go ahead and start and give Jack's bio, and then we'll go ahead and get into uh, an amazing conversation that I'm really looking forward to. Great. Yeah. So Jack was uh, born and raised in Jerusalem to a British mother and a Palestinian Christian citizen of Israel father. Uh, Salim, a wonderful man, actually. I'm sure your mom's even better, by the way, right? <laughs> Jack uh, completed his BA in sociology and criminology from the University of York and an MA in human rights and transitional justice from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Jack uh, currently manages the World Council of Churches Ecumenical Accompaniment Program in, in Palestine and Israel. Jack's main line of work has been focusing on human rights and humanitarian assistance. He's also acting in bridge building initiatives and advocacy platforms like Christ at the Checkpoint, the Jerusalem Belfast Initiative, and much more. So Jack, we just want to thank you for being here with us today, and uh, thanks for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Let's just begin by having you tell us a little bit more about yourself, maybe your family, and, and then about the work that you do with uh, EA PPI. So um, my family here in Jerusalem, uh, we are, I'm one of four boys, and my ancestry, I guess, on the Palestinian side is from the city of Lydda, the ancient city of Lydda. Uh, and then on my mother's side, I, I'm British and I grew up in Jerusalem, very much in an interesting context in between both the Israeli community and the Palestinian community in Jerusalem. And so this is sort of where I thrive, I guess, in this sort of uh, complex place. I'm married and I have two two kids two boys Wonderful. and um, they're both asleep now so this is I'm happy to be able to, to speak <laughs> to you with some quiet very good very good tell us about EA PPI then and what it does and and how it operates and what your role specifically with them is 
So EAPPI is a program under the World Council of Churches. It began about 20 years ago. Actually, this, is the, this year is the 20th anniversary of the program. And it began during a very violent period here in Israel and Palestine, the second intifada. Right. There was a lot of violence, a lot of human rights violations. And the Palestinian heads of churches, different bishops and patriarchs came together and said, we would like to have a nonviolent Christian response to what we are seeing around us. And so a program was developed where internationals could come and uh, visit here in Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron, Jericho, and basically stand at military checkpoints, shoulder to shoulder mm. with Palestinians that were going through every day and were suffering all sorts of harassment by soldiers. And what was quickly discovered is that if you have an international just standing and watching mm. uh, the situation, the levels of violence, the uh, human rights violations are reduced significantly. So since then, our program has expanded to accompany children to school through military checkpoints. We accompany children past settlements where they don't feel safe. We will accompany shepherds and their sheep in areas where they might face harassment. And so we try to provide protective presence. We try to document incidents when they take place. So we have a, an accurate picture of what's going on on the ground. And then we try to advocate. So each person that comes and participates in this program will spend some time advocating in their home countries about what they witnessed, wow. about the different things going on here. And so that, in the nutshell, is the program. I oversee all the operations here in Jerusalem. So I, I manage our office and the staff, uh, but our headquarters are in Geneva, Switzerland. Hey, Jack, let's actually just back this up a little yeah, bit because there's yeah. going to be, there's gonna, I mean, gosh, <laughs> right there, yeah. there's so much stuff. That was um, great, yeah we have so many listeners who they're going to be hearing some of these things where they're going to be thinking like, what do you mean a military checkpoint? I like, so living in, in the States, I live in California. And so when in California, we might talk about a checkpoint and we might think of something like the border between Mexico and California. And usually you don't have people going back and forth on a daily basis that like, you know, you wouldn't have a kid from Mexico needing help going to school in America or vice versa. So this might be like, maybe that one of the images that we might have in the West why would there even be a checkpoint in a region where a kid would have to go through this checkpoint to get to school? Sure. That's, uh, that's, it's a fair question. Yeah. Um, there are hundreds of military checkpoints um, within the West Bank, or what's oftentimes referred to as the Palestinian territories. And Palestinians will have to go through these checkpoints in order to get to their work, to their schools. If they want to visit another Palestinian city, they will have to go through a military checkpoint. Uh, I suppose that uh, on the Israeli side, it's uh, seen as a, a protection uh, measure in order to stop people that may want to cause harm. But in reality, what it does is it separates Palestinians from accessing basic services, such as schools or visiting relatives. If you're going from Bethlehem to Ramallah, uh, two Palestinian cities, you will have to go through multiple military checkpoints. And so, Many times, you know, if, if you are going through this checkpoint, you are at the mercy of this uh, soldier. Is he going to treat you nice today? Is he not going to treat you nice today? Is he going to let you through? Is he not going to let you through? So is it pretty arbitrary like that in terms of like, you just don't know what you're going to get? You have no idea. Hmm. You have, it, it's entirely dependent on the person on the day. So some, I'll just give you some examples. Um, on some checkpoints that we monitor, if you get a bad soldier on that day, 
you could be turned away from work because they just don't feel like it. Mm. Um, some people that we have that have come to us have said that they've been uh, turned away from checkpoint because their shoes are too white or they're carrying too many sandwiches in their bag. And it's a system with no accountability. There's no way for a Palestinian to be able to try and find a remedy to these issues. So they cannot call a police or file a complaint, or at least not one that's going to be taken seriously. And so this is basically where we come in. And another point that I should add is that many children have to go through these checkpoints without an adult, without mm -hmm. a, a, a guardian, because they may, their parents might have to go through a different checkpoint in order to get to their work, and children have to go through a second checkpoint to get to school. And so these children are very vulnerable. So this is the role that we try to fill is to at least have an adult sort of who's, who's not in military uniform, who's observing and making sure that everything's okay. Yeah, and this is, again, just to clarify, this is within your own territory, within your own essentially country or, or established region, the freedom of movement is just simply non-existent that you have to go through to go to work from one city to another city within your own region, these checkpoints that uh, are sometimes arbitrary. I went through the one in, the one in Bethlehem one time and I, I said, I want to go through this one. And I realized later there was another line right next to it. And I think the other line was for internationals, but I wasn't sure. I thought, no, I need to go through this line and be, and be with the people and just see what they're experiencing. And we're talking 5 a.m. So they can get to work in Jerusalem at 7 a.m. And Jerusalem is what, five miles away at the most from, from this checkpoint. And someone said to me, he said, we don't need human rights activists. We need animal rights activists because mm. we're just simply a bunch of cattle right now. And I'm, and I was just, I was appalled at what I was experiencing. It was just, it was, it was so grieving. And I, I know of others who've said that they live in Ramallah and, and Jackie can help me out. Ramallah is what, you know, 20 minutes from Jerusalem, maybe, you know, without checkpoints. Yeah. 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 Maybe even less. And, yeah. Maybe even less. And they were Muslim. And they, on Fridays, their holy day. So that's the day that they would go to Jerusalem. And, go, and they said, we, we, sometimes we just wouldn't even go because mm. when there's a curfew and you have to be back by six o'clock or you get, you get arrested. He said, we don't know if, if we're going to be able to get back by six o'clock, even though the services might end at noon, you're talking six hours to get through the, these checkpoints. And then, and then you get arrested and it costs $10,000, which is what I was told to get out of prison. Uh, so this is this and this is just one fabric of life. So this is incredible uh, what, what, what you're saying. And can you imagine that? Can you tell us a little bit about the trauma that this brings upon uh, a child who's going to school, for example, then? Sure. Through our research, we have discovered that if a child is not accompanied and experiences a stressful situation at the checkpoint, they will not be able to study or function for the first few hours of their school. Mm. You know, the first few hours of class are completely lost. And the mm. teacher will say, there's just no point in trying to teach these kids. They've just been shouted at or yelled at uh, by a person in uniform with a gun and yelled at in a language they don't understand. Right. And it causes a huge amount of stress on the kids. In many cases, you will have an older sibling that has to take the younger siblings to school because the parents can't go with them. And so that uh, older brother, normally older brother, will feel a huge amount of stress and pressure, a lot of psychosocial pressure in order to protect his younger siblings. In very conservative communities in the West Bank, um, families will simply not send girls to school 
mm. if they're going to go through checkpoints and might face harassment. So simple things like having access to education without being harassed, without facing pressure and stress simply doesn't exist for, for thousands of children. There are even schools that are uh, attacked themselves by Israeli settlers or uh, soldiers will come to try and arrest children within the schools themselves. Wow. And that will, you can imagine a class of kids, suddenly a, unit, a military unit comes in and, and arrests um, two or three boys. It, it, it causes a huge trauma. So uh, these are the type of things that we try to prevent direct and, in, you know, and sort of the indirect consequences of uh, the military occupation that is in control of many Palestinian lives. What are ways, like tangible ways in which you do that? Is it just merely having an adult presence there or is it, are, are you guys known as being, you know, having a, a position in the community or what makes, you know, your organization special in terms of providing these services? That's an excellent question. It's because the people who are standing at these checkpoints are internationals right. because mm-hmm. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is also a battle of image, public image. Mm -hmm. And we care what you think. Mm. And so um, if a Palestinian adult will stand there, the soldier won't care how he behaves. But if an international stands there, Mm. you have to behave better. Uh, That international will document, will report what he sees or she sees. And that that will have a big impact potentially on public opinion. We wear identifiable vests Mm. so that everyone knows you know, we're not just standing here. We're here to serve this purpose. If you've been turned away from the checkpoint, if you've been harassed, come to us. We, we, will, we will record what's happened to you. And, and that story will be shared. Otherwise, these stories would go completely unnoticed. Yeah, I was going to mention that when people look at this particular conflict, they think it's Israeli versus Palestinian. And all reality, the average mom and dad in Israel and the average mom and dad in Palestine don't want this conflict at all. And they can get along. They have gotten along in the past, long before uh, 1948. They lived side by side. But what happens then is you, and tell me what you think of this or if I'm wrong here at all. Number one, you get 20-year-old kids as soldiers who are already a little bit terror-struck and, and awestruck, and they've got this AKA-47 or whatever kind of weapons they have, and and they're and they and they do feel concern, you know, for terrorism, whatever it might be. But the real issue really becomes settlers, right? That, that uh, and the settler violence. Can you tell us a little bit of, about that and what that means and what settlers are and why that's the area where the conflict actually is most intense? Now, this is a key point that is consistently misunderstood by a Western audience about what we experience here. It's not one side against the other right. fighting over land. It's people that are living uh, intertwined right next to each other. Within the West Bank, the area that is supposedly supposed to be the future state of Palestine, there are hundreds of thousands of settlers, Israeli Jewish citizens living within the Palestinian territories. So there's overall, if I'm not mistaken, including the Jerusalem district, around 600,000 settlers. And so this is in our opinion and the opinion of most of the international community, the main obstacle for peace is that if there's going to be a future Palestinian state, you cannot have it like a slice of Swiss cheese, but there's all these islands of settlements. Um, The settlements have continued to expand. 
from their inception in 1967 until today. But this is also a state-sponsored initiative. It's by, by the Israeli state. Correct. Yeah. Um, an attempt to stop any future Palestinian state from, right. from taking place. By moving its population into the Palestinian territories, it de facto yes. becomes Israel. Yes, in many of the territories. So you'll have Israeli police stations, Israeli buses, schools, swimming pools. I mean, they yes. function almost like any other Israeli city, but they're within the West Bank. Right. And this is a violation of international law. Mm -hmm. It's against the Fourth Geneva Convention, which states that if you are occupying another territory, you cannot put your population in there. Right. So just to give you a quick example, when the United States invaded Iraq, it, there were not cities or towns of American citizens that were being established in Iraq during that occupation. Right. So that, in a sense, was an adherence to the Fourth Geneva Convention in that aspect. That's not what we experience here. So you have one side that's supposed to be a future Palestine, but it's full of Israeli Jewish cities. And many of these settlers are, are religious fanatics, radicals, Right. who use uh, violent methods in order to try and drive people out of their homes. Uh, they'll burn uh, crops, they'll attack sheep, anything to intimidate the population to try and make them leave. Right. I, I, I don't think on this podcast, I, Rob, I'm trying to think back when we've briefly talked about this, like with David uh, Crump, uh, mm -hmm. when we reviewed his book, I think we talked about settlements a little bit, but I don't know if we've actually talked a lot about that. And that's not the, the point of this show, but can we just provide a little context on what this is? Cause I know yeah. in my own church context, I I'll have conversations with folks and the average person has no clue that's what right. a settlement is or what this thing is. So like Jack, you could be using language right now that our language that our listeners are literally not knowing what you're talking about with a settlement like that. That's just a foreign concept to them. Yeah, we could have a map, I suppose. I can put one in it's, the show notes or a link to one in the show notes. Yeah, but, that would be helpful. Yeah. So for those that do look at the map, the territory that is prescribed as the West Bank essentially was the, was the division that took place after the first war that we had in 1948. And the international community agreed, okay, the West Bank and Gaza, this is going to be the future Palestinian state. Anything outside of that is going to be the state of Israel. And in 1967, after another war, Israel occupied, took effective control of all these territories. So until today, uh, Palestinians cannot build an airport, cannot trade, cannot move without the permission of, an Israeli of the Israeli military. So effectively, Israel controls all the land. And within this territory, east of the Green Line or east of the West Bank Line, any Israeli Jewish town or city is a settlement. So if you're thinking of Tel Aviv, if you're thinking of uh, Haifa or Beersheba, these are all Israeli cities. But if you hear places like Ariel or Elad, these are settlements. Which are cities inside of the Palestinian, Israeli cities inside the Palestinian territories. Yes, correct. Yeah. Rob, can you paint a picture of that, like contextualize that for our American audience, like maybe using a state or, or something it, like it's that? It's like, like the United States invading Canada and, and attacking Canada and then saying, you know, we think you're a threat to us. And because you're a threat to us, we're going to continue our military presence in Canada. So now 
we're concerned for our, our well-being and our self-defense against Canada. And then what we do is we say, and what we're going to do is we're going to start taking people from Minnesota and moving them into Canada and putting st- cities, American cities inside of Canada to secure an American presence there. And what eventually happens is that we're never going to withdraw our military from Canada. We're actually just going to make Canada part of the United States. And this and is they- different. This is different than like when we might have a, an American military base in Germany or something right. where there's an agreement where they say, Hey, right. you guys can have this plot of land and you could do this. And there's, there's national agreements that that's different than what we're talking about. Yeah. Here. And what happens then is, is because, because you have Israeli people living in Palestinian territories, those people are threatened. They're, they're, they've took somebody else's land, right? Mm-hmm. They stole somebody else's land or whatever it might be from a Palestinian. And now there's tension there. The Palestinians don't like it. Obviously who, who would like it? And so now you have to protect them. So now that increases the military presence and it increases. And what Jack was saying is there's two types of settlers. One are economic settlers. They move there because the government says, hey, we're going to give you a free home or a cheap home. And because you can't afford to live in Tel Aviv, it's too expensive. But there are others are ideological settlers and they're settlers who move there because this is the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And mm-hmm. it's our land and we're taking it back. We don't care what you say. And those are where you get the religious fanaticism now who you're living in somebody else's land. You think it's yours and there's tension. Let's fight over it. And if I can make one more comment, Jack, when you mentioned the Swiss cheese, what we picture is, we, you know, there's all these islands of Israeli cities around the Palestinian territories. But actually, the holes in the Swiss cheese are the Palestinian lands because the Israeli settlements are connected to one another mm-hmm. by roads and, uh, and this infrastructure. And now to go from, that's why Jack was saying you have to go through a check, but to go from one Palestinian area to another, you're passing through an Israeli road or another, uh, uh, the outskirts of Ma'al, Adamim, a, a settlement. And then these settlers come down and meet you and there's tension and there's violence. And that's, and that's where the most of the conflict is, uh, you know, and they'll go, oh, you know, these Palestinians attacked, you know, these Israelis it was like, well, they attacked settlers who probably caused a problem last week, but we didn't report on that in the American news media. So. Yeah. Is that fair, Jack? Or? Yeah, that's fair. This, this is actually one of the topics of my uh, my thesis in university was about the road system. Mm-hmm. How there's roads that are for Israelis only and Palestinians cannot use these roads. So you have to take really long bypass routes, yeah. uh, roads that are underdeveloped in order to reach a city that's 20 minutes away. It could take you an hour mm-hmm. uh, or longer. And so it's a whole matrix system of control and separation. Yeah, I was in a settlement on one occasion and we were, our group was visiting a settlement and the mayor of the settlement was kind of giving us this presentation. And his whole argument was, all right, we have this land, it's in Palestinian territory. Yeah, but it's our land. And his argument was this particular settlement was um, their land before 1948. So when the United, when the United Nations gave this land to the Palestinians, they gave Israeli land. And I'm thinking, well, there's a lot of Palestinian land on the other side of Israel. They're not trying, trying to get it back either. But so we were walking to the bus because we were going to take a drive around the settlement. So after a one hour presentation, we're going to take a drive around the settlement. He's going to show us the pools and the parks and the, and the schools and the malls and everything else about the city. And I stopped him. I said, I said, OK, so if I'm hearing you right, what you're saying is, is that this land, which is on Palestinian territory, was actually your land before 48. And you don't think the United Nations has the right to give it to the Palestinians. He said, yeah, that's exactly right. I said, okay, what about the highway that is used to connect this city to the greater, greater Israel, ultimately Tel Aviv, et cetera? And he said, well, well, I said, isn't that on Palestinian lands? He said, well, you know, every, every city has, every country has a right to, to build an infrastructure. 
And I said, but it's not your country. Mm-hmm. You can't build an infrastructure on somebody else's country. Every right, every country has a right to build. And he just kept re- reiterating the same line. We have a right to build an infrastructure on somebody else's uh, within our own country. I'm like, but it's not your country. And it was, oh, it was an incredibly flabber, flabbergasting moment. I just, I just couldn't believe, I was appalled uh, thinking, okay, there's Palestinian lands. I, I actually know somebody Vinny up in, in Pleasanton, where, not far from where Vinny lives, uh, whose family land is now the Tel Aviv, is now Ben Gurion Airport. Mm. So they're Palestinians and they have no hope of ever going back because their land is now under, underneath an airport. So, yeah. Um, so Jack, what are some of the biggest obstacles you face then uh, and that you encounter in this work that you're doing? Well, now we have COVID, which is, which is a, huge, That's right. uh, a huge obstacle for us. It's very difficult to bring internationals to be present here, to accompany people. The program... Uh, has not been functioning for the past year and a half oh, until boy. recently mm-hmm. where the airports open up and we saw a huge spike in harassment against people oh. people calling our office saying when are the people coming back we don't feel safe we need to be accompanied um and just give you in numbers in 2000 uh, in 2020 the amount of reported settler harassment so settler violence against civilians there were 358 cases. In 2021, there were 450. Simply because there are no internationals there to monitor, to provide that protective presence. So that's one big obstacle. The second obstacle is from the settlers and soldiers themselves. They don't want the international community to know what is going on in the West Bank. So they will try to intimidate, try to restrict our ability to work, uh, which is very difficult. And the context itself is very difficult. We're talking about places that experience um, consistent high levels of violence. It's not an easy job to stand at a military checkpoint. Yeah. It's not easy to accompany shepherds uh, near um, a firing zone um, that the military uses that's on Palestinian land because a lot of their uh, military practice areas, they take Palestinian fields to, to do their military practices. So. In that sense, these are these are just three quick examples of some of the obstacles that we face in just trying to implement the work that we do. Wow. Now, when we're all done, I'm going to ask you know, how people can get involved and kind of get active in this as well. But one of the reasons why I reached out to you was one of the Palestinian Christian people that I have come to know well uh, is Daoud Nassar. And uh, Daoud is just the living embodiment, in my opinion, and I don't know, Jack, you know him well, you're like, Rob, you can't have such glowing uh, uh, thoughts on him. I, I know who he really is. But uh, I just look at this man and go, this man embodies the Christian life of suffering uh, gracefully and, and lovingly. And he was recently attacked again. And can you kind of tell us a little bit about who Dawood is, what his story is, and fill us in. I don't, we actually don't think we actually have done a podcast on this at all. Uh, and then what happened to him recently and, and what's going on now? Um, so this is uh, our friend Dawood Nassar. Um, his family own land on the outskirts of Bethlehem. And they have sort of a hill where they have livestock, they have agriculture, um, all sorts of uh, olive trees and uh, d- different um, projects like that. And his hill is the last hill that has not been taken over by an Israeli settlement in the area. Mm. All the other hills that used to be owned by Palestinian families have all been taken over. And so his hill is completely surrounded Mm. by Israeli settlements. 
his access to the main road from this hill has been uh, completely blocked off by the Israeli military. So you have to take these windy side roads in order to access it. And uh, Dod, along with his, his brother Daher and the whole family, have decided that they're going to approach this injustice, the restrictions against them um, with, as you said, the, a, a Christian attitude of peacemaking, of nonviolence, of creative resistance. So in order to put pressure on them, the Israeli military will not allow them to build any structure on their, on their own land. Yeah. So many times they will come and they will stay in caves that their great-great-grandfathers used to, to live in. That's how long the land has been owned by Dode's family. And unlike many Palestinians, Dode's family have managed to save a lot of documents proving that this land is theirs. So you had settlers come and attack Dode's farm in the past. You've had the military come and uproot their uh, apricot trees and if anything to put pressure on them not to, to leave this land and to build a new settlement on it. And recently Dode uh, had conveyed to me a concern that he's had is that uh, he, he believes that some of the settlers are now cooperating with some Palestinians mm. to try and help put pressure to remove Dode and his family from this land. So the settlers have not managed to do it themselves. They haven't managed to do it through the military. So they said, okay, we're going to find some Palestinians. No. We're going to try and perhaps make a deal with them. Oh. What that deal is, we don't know. Um, but this is a suspicion. This is not something that we, yeah. we know for a fact. Mm. And so Dode was with his brother and um, they were uh, tending the land and they were attacked by, I think about 12 to 15 uh, masked people with knives and with uh, sticks. This is, and, this is within the last two weeks, right? This is within the last two weeks. Yeah. And fortunately, I suppose, there was an international there, a volunteer, who when she came out, basically all the people left because there's an international present, right? Mm -hmm. It's the same principle of what we've discussed beforehand. Um, so, so both of them were hospitalized, Dode and his brother. Uh, Dode has been, uh, he has now left hospital and he's recovering at home. But unfortunately, his brother Daher was injured uh, a bit more severely. Oh, I didn't know that. And um, we're, you know, we're really concerned for their safety, of course, mm -hmm. but also uh, for their land, their property. So for us in EAPPI, we are sending uh, our uh, international accompaniers to accompany different members of the family to make sure that they can feed the animals just for a few hours a day um, and just to keep their eye to make sure that no one is, is trespassing and taking over the land. So it... It, it's a heartbreaking situation for um, for many of us that know Dode, know the resilience of the family, the the amazing attitude they have in the face of injustice, and yeah. so we're trying to support them uh, in this way. But I know that they've also been sharing things on social media. I would really encourage everyone to look for Tent of Nations mm -hmm. on their different social media platforms to stay up to date. Yeah, there's one. Uh, they, there's a Facebook group, I think, because uh, Tent of Nations is Daoud's uh, organization, right? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think for those who are listening, Vinny and I recorded last night, which I won't, won't post for another couple of weeks, uh, kind of an overview on the Sermon on the Mount. And we start with, you know, 
blessed are those who mourn. And I think this is exactly what it means. It's mm -hmm. you weep and you mourn when you hear of injustice like this, no matter who it's happening to, Israelis or Palestinians or Muslims or Christians or Jews. But when you see a brother um, and, sister and, and his family in Christ and, and whatever, so now we'll, we'll definitely be praying for, for Dahar, um, Dahar uh, even more so. And it's this, it, it, if you hear his story and read his story, uh, unbelievable. and they've been going through this since 1991 in particular as, mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, well, so I, how can we find out if someone hears this podcast and says, Hey, I want to, maybe I'm a college student or I'm a young adult or whatever, or I'm a retiree or whatever. I, I've got three months on my hands or one month. I don't know how long they can come over and do these accompanying programs. How do they get involved? Can you, can you give us information on that? And then, and maybe I'll share the links or some links if you might have them as well in the, in the show notes so they can get involved with that. But can you speak to that a little bit, Jack? Sure. Um, with the groups that we have that come for three months, we have people come from around 11 or 12 different countries. Hmm. So on our website, which is eappi.org, you can find your contact person in your country okay. to ask about how you join the program, what's it like, what are the requirements. And then you could come and accompany someone like Daoud or families like Daoud who uh, are desperately in need of protection. Wow. And it, do you need like a visa to come over or like, what are the requirements that you would need in order to just enter the country? Well, I've, before you, you would even think about a visa and entering the country, you have to be trained. You have to mm -hmm. be trained in the principles of nonviolent accompaniment. Okay. You have to become, you know, you, we have to trust that when you come and you see all sorts of difficult situations that you're going to be able to, to, to handle it, to, uh, that you have an interest, you have a passion for uh, Israel and Palestine. It's a huge opportunity to build relationships with people that you would normally not reach or not hear about in the media. Um, and so there's a, a whole uh, training and application process beforehand. And then you would come uh, simply at the invitation of the heads of churches. So the churches mm -hmm. invite you to come, to come and witness, to come and, and accompany uh, the church and the Palestinian communities. And... Um, and it is, it is an issue that we have faced at the airport, where at times uh, people have been turned away. Mm. But overall, um, we are successful in having people come uh, and access. Uh, we have people from the United States, from Canada, um, most of Western Europe, from Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador and Colombia, from South Africa. I mean, we really have... Um, a united group of people from different backgrounds to come and say that we, we don't agree with this. Now, not everyone that participates in this program is Christian. In mm -hmm. fact, I would say that most of the people that participate would describe themselves as non-religious. Hmm. They agree to uphold the values mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, of EAPPI. There's a theology behind what we do. Um, and we try to uh, build that in parallel to the language of human rights and international law. Wow. Fantastic. And so, and you're allowed in Israel for three months without a visa, um, as long as you can get past the, get past the airport. So, and I'm sure you well, guys, I mean, you that. will get a visa, but yeah, but yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Upon entrance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything else that we've missed that you want us to, to make sure we know about or our listeners hear, hear about? I'm just very grateful for the opportunity to, to speak with you. I really, I know that this is, it feels like a very complicated situation, but having conversations like this is the yeah. first step to knowing and, and understanding. And I would encourage everyone who's, who's interested in this topic to continue to explore it. 
whether it's the geopolitical um, uh, map of Israel-Palestine or whether it's, um, you know, what we as Palestinian Christians are trying to do, uh, trying to support our communities uh, here. So just very grateful for your time and for everyone that's, that's listening. And even right there, just how you're ending the thing, Palestinian Christians, which that might seem like an oxymoron to many of us in the West because the Palestinians are the bad guys. They're the Muslims who want to kill us. And it's like, no, this is a much more complex situation than we've been told from our news outlets. Absolutely. We have a a very small, we're less than 2% of the population here as Palestinian Christians, but we're active, vibrant parts of the society here. Uh, my family have been Palestinian Christians for at least 800 years. Mm. We see our presence, uh, the different work that we do, as a continuation of the Gospels, as it were, a continuation of the work that, that, Jesus, that Jesus brought for his disciples here in this land. And so we're oftentimes not heard of, and that's intentional. Mm-hmm. People, it's It's very easy for people to imagine this as a, uh, clash of civilization, West versus Islam, Jews versus mm-hmm, Muslims, mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is more complex. And if you if you keep it like a Star Wars film, it's goodies versus baddies, right? But when you're talking about real humans, about uh, real people, uh, you have to think twice. Yeah, it, it's just this American way of thinking. Though I remember someone said to one, to one of the Palestinians, "So how long has your family been Christians?" And their response was. Somewhere between the book of Acts chapter two and Acts chapter five. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, we were the first ones, you know, right? The, the church that you're reading about in the book of Acts, that's, that's my family. And, and, and what's interesting in there, one of the great books that was written uh, is called Blood Brothers by Elias Shakur. Mm-hmm. And his whole point is Palestinian Christians are, could be very well descended from the Jewish converts to Christianity in the first, in the first century at the time of Jesus. This is, this is not what we think it is. So um, yeah, thank you so much for taking your time. And wow, I'm just so amazed at the work that you're doing. And your mom did a great job uh, raising you. Uh, I'm not sure how much your dad helped, helped to do that, but tell him I said hi. Uh, <laughs> anyways, and uh, I hope that uh, I can get back to the land sometime soon and, and we can get together and have uh, have some Arabic coffee. So, Ahlan uh, wa sahlan. You'll be most welcome. Yes, wonderful. And if you ever come to the States, of course, please look us up and we're happy to, to host you and, and, and also. So thank you for being with us. Thank you. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that. I, I know if, if no one else enjoyed that, Rob and I enjoyed that. Yeah. that <laughs> get this, this shapes the trajectory of my day. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Jack, great meeting you. Please, everyone, check out the show notes in the podcast. A lot of times we don't look at those, but scroll up on your podcast app. Look at all the links that Rob provided for this episode and show how you could get involved and just learn more about this very important topic. But we thank you for listening. We'll see you guys later. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.